Hey everybody, uh, so good to see you and be with you. Everybody, say hi to S Sid. Oh, Sid, she's over here. <laughs> this is Sidney, and uh, we're going to have another conversation. As we have done before, my friends, we would love your uh, feedback, uh, comments, questions, both in the YouTube, or you can text me. There's my number somewhere over, over there. There's my number so you can text me. I've got all of that up. And um, this is what has made this time so rich and wonderful is to hear from all of you. So please keep that coming uh, and we appreciate it. Today, we're going to, uh, I think, we're, what are we doing? So we're going to do a quick recap as to how we got here. Talk a little bit about parables, introduce chapter 13, and give everybody a revolutionary message uh, from Jesus. Let's do it. Is that what we're that doing? That sounds amazing. So, so uh, we're going to cover today's, oh, go ahead, Mark. Go ahead. No, you got it. No, I was just going to say, uh, we're going to cover a series of parables that Jesus preaches in Luke chapter 13. And for many of you who are new to Spark, we have preached extensively about parables, why Jesus speaks in parables as a central tool to his ministry in previous sermons. So if you all are interested, Pastor Omer a couple of years ago did a great intro to parables and why storytelling is such an effective technique at compelling and convincing and then earlier in Luke, I think last year, I've lost track of point oh, time yeah. at this point, Kevin, yeah, what, what is we time? preached on the parable of the sower, which is Jesus's parable about parables, where we again did like a little summary of why parables as a storytelling technique. But, you know, in summary, the reasons parables are so effective is because they invite us into a world that is different enough from our own, where we lower our defenses and are interested in what the storyteller has to say. But when we realize what's really going on and that the story is really about us, the challenge that it poses is so beautiful and transformational uh, that the power that it can have on influencing what we do next is uh, is tremendous. Yeah. So there's yeah. my 101. Yeah, well, and for those of you who want to follow up a little bit more, Sidney is a, an incredible intellect around storytelling, the history of it. And parables are obviously a genre or... I mean, would you call it a genre of storytelling? I don't know if that's even the right terminology there. Yeah, but... I'd say parables are uh, like, a, I would say it's a technique. It's one of many forms of storytelling mm -hmm. that biblical writers use throughout our text. Um, mm -hmm. And it happens to be my favorite. Yeah. Okay, Sid, um, give us a brief uh, summary as to how we got to chapter 13 here. And then I think I'd like to start with just the first five verses because there's some really, there's a, Jesus is going to say no. And this no yes. that he says here, I think is really, really important for a lot of people watching, uh, for me personally. So give us a little bit of history. Oh, we got there. And then I want to um, ask you about the double edge sword of storytelling, because what's what's happening here feels like another side of the story. So um, so that's my provocation, and then we'll, we'll see where that goes. So, but, but I think you want to give us a little bit of history. How did we get here? Uh, how, what led us up to this particular point? That sounds great. So the first parable that, that we're going to cover today is the parable of the fig tree. And a little bit of context, um, you know, for the past couple chapters, Jesus has been uh, embarking on his journey into Jerusalem. And there are a number of pretty key themes that we've covered over the past several weeks that are central to Jesus's ministry and also central to Go uh, Luke's gospel account, right? Uh, Pastor Danielle, uh, Kevin, and Omer last week spoke a lot about uh, really that great reversal, right? The flipping and the inside out of insiders becoming outsiders, outsiders becoming insiders. And that's a theme that we'll see permeate throughout the rest of chapter 13 and into the rest of Luke's gospel account. But I wanted Kevin to sort of set up 
what happens right before the parable of the fig tree. Should we read the parable first to the audience so they just have a general sense of where we are and then we can talk about what comes right before it, those first five lines? Um, I completely lost audio. <laughs> oh no. I think I got, let me try this again. So sorry, everybody. I think I got to change to this. Go ahead and say something, Sid. Can you hear me? Yeah, okay. All right, so, um, so I missed a couple portions of there. Say that last piece That's there. That's okay. Sorry. I was just going to say that um, I was thinking that maybe we could read to the audience uh, the parable of the fig tree and then describe sort of where we're at in Luke's narrative, the five verses that come right before it that are really integral to helping understand what's going on. Uh, and then we can just jam on what the heck is is going on in this parable. Okay. Does that sound good? That, that sounds great because it's those first five verses that I, I want to push you on a little bit. So, um, For sure. Okay, so chapter 13, You want did you want to read? Do you want me to read? Go for it. Okay, so chapter 13, verse 1 through 5, reads this. Now, listen carefully, everybody, because I have a feeling this might sound familiar to some of you who have been in church a while or have heard spiritual uh, people comment on natural events or tragedies that have happened in the world. Just listen to uh, this is really amazingly relevant to how uh, we as humans, again, tell stories about things that happen. So uh, chapter 13, verse 1, at that very time, there were some present who told him Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It's a, referencing some sort of historical event. Pilate was not a great guy, so there's a lot of stuff written in Josephus and other historians about his um, brutal reign. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, that's the no that I think is so important. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Okay, this no feels to me like a really critical and important no that Jesus says that is extremely relevant for those of us even living today and something that we've been wrestling with pretty much for thousands of years. When bad things happen, is it because I sinned? Hey, these Galileans, and Jesus even points this out, these Galileans, they clearly suffered or you are presupposing that they suffered because they must have been worse worth sinners. And Jesus says, no. Nope. The Tower of Siloam fell. Oh, they must have been worse offenders. Jesus answers, no. <laughs> um, and so I, I kind of wanted just to emphasize that because I feel like in our journey, in, even in ministry, we have people continually emerging with, and here's, here's the, the double-edged side of this uh, storytelling, Sid, with stories that they tell themselves about the bad things that have happened. And the bad things that have happened or the tragedies that occur begin to evolve into the story that they begin to tell themselves that I must have sinned. You will find religious commentators on the news discuss how the reason why this hurricane happened or the reason why this earthquake happened or the reason why these fires happened is because and then fill in the blank of people who they claim to have been sinners. And because they were sinners, or in whatever definition they mean with that, that is why these things have happened. And this, to me, 
feels like extremely relevant and why we need to hear Jesus say, no. Do you think these people are, are worse sinners? Jesus says, no. My question for you, Sid, in the midst of all of this is that <clears throat> the parable that Jesus is going to tell is going to cast, uh, I think, a vision, uh, as we have talked about before, for the coming of the kingdom, which is going to counter this narrative. And I just kind of want to ask you about the double-edged sword of storytelling. Storytelling can provide us with an incredible sense of meaning, an incredible sense of direction, an incredible sense of connection. But this is also storytelling. Those people were sinners. I'm a sinner. I must have caused this tragedy. And so the fact that we're storytelling animals feels like this double-edged sword. What say you? Sydney, regarding I storytelling. I think that's a great assessment of what's going on here, Kevin. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. When we talk about the dangers of storytelling or the dangers of the kinds of stories that we tell and the impact they can have on others. I often refer to the Nigerian writer Chimamanda Adichie, and she wrote uh, We Should All Be Feminists and Americana. And she gave a TED Talk a couple years ago that stuck with me really ever since where she says that the single most dangerous story that you can tell is a unidimensional story, right? It's having yes. a single perspective, a singular point of view on a person or a community, a place, an issue. Um, and that is the most dangerous thing that we can do. And I think that Jesus goes on in the parable of the fig tree to contrast like a world where we just look at people from the lens of judgment and condemnation and criticism and pointing out the things that are wrong with this parallel world of holding out hope and renewal and the potential for redemption. And I think that him doing that is just this beautiful way of upending at the time, this ancient worldview that any time disaster struck anybody, it was some form of divine punishment, right? right. Or divine like justice at work. Yeah. And so I think that what he's doing here is just amazing. And I'm sure that his audience would have reacted probably with some degree of shock too. Like, right. What? The people crushed under the tower didn't deserve it? What are you talking about? Right, right. Cle clearly, clearly, God is in control. Therefore, this happened, right. and, and y y these people must have been at fault. We uh, we had a conversation, one of those cru crucial conversations at the very beginning of our lockdown and pandemic, and I remember asking you that question, what makes a bad story? And that was a I, that has always stuck with me. A bad story is a story that essentially only has one ending or one direction, it's a unidirectional uh, singular ending. And uh, yeah, I do feel like the encouragement to our community and to anybody who's, you know, journeying through this world, um, feeling the weight of that spiritual judgment, God must be judging you or all these bad things are happening or even all these good things are happening because of you. That's, that's that feels like a very singular kind of narrative that we're telling ourselves. And the fact, again, I think this is what we're going to get to in the, the parable with the fig tree, the fact that there's even repentance, uh, the fact that there's even the possibility of a different direction opens up the principle of a singular ending, what Jesus is doing, yeah. opening up that to say, no, that is not the only story that is being told. That's not the only possibility. And that's essentially what hope is. That hope is like there are multiple possibilities here and we have essentially a responsibility and the prerogative and the power by the spirit of God within us to advance and to pursue these possibilities, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah, I love that. Do you want to, Kevin, uh, read the parable of the fig tree and then we can sort of break down? There's a lot of different images going on here. And so maybe we can break down uh, for, for the audience what specifically is going on and what these different items represent. Verse six through nine. This is after Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Verse six. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around, uh, to, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Okay. I love this parable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what what do you think is going on here, uh, Sid? What are um, what would be some of the, I guess, the core principles? So we've talked about storytelling. Jesus is For casting sure. the hope here of a, of a different way of conceiving. So what the world does fig tree have to do with the counter narrative to the verses we just read that, you know, hey, you're a sinner. Therefore, all these bad things happen to you. So. Totally. So I think one uh, thing that's super helpful when we read Jesus's parables or any kind of storytelling in our text is to go and look at where we see these images happen in other places in scripture, right? So when we see the fig tree and we see vines, that's actually a really common Old Testament uh, image of Israel in prosperity or Israel in peace. Uh, we also see the inverse of that, right? Like fig trees or plants or vines that don't grow or that are dead representing Israel's uh, failure to respond to God. Mm. Um, and then we see the destruction of fig trees and vines in places like the Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, which represent God's judgment, right? God's uh, action against people who aren't following his call. And so I think that's uh, a good way to just figure out the fig tree in this case, um, it probably represents uh, Israel. You have the person who wants to destroy the fig tree representing God in some capacity. And uh, there's like these three separate images going on. There's the tree being cut down, which represents this threat of God's imminent judgment mm. looming over Israel's leaders. But then you have this image, which is so beautiful and unexpected in the parable of the tree being nurtured for another year. Put so some manure alongside... around it. Right. That's <laughs> all you got to do. Um, so alongside this just message of judgment and despair and like everyone's going to die is this other beautiful image of hope, right? And the fact that just like God's judgment isn't saved specifically for victims of disaster, like the people crushed under the Tower of Siloam or the people who died under Pilate's sword, just like that, God's love and God's renewal and God's hope is equally accessible to everybody. It's just a choice that each of us has to make. And I think that Jesus contrasting those two images in that way is just a really beautiful reminder to all of ourselves that before we look at other people and place judgment and condemnation on them for whether or not they're following God's call in the right way, let's look at ourselves yeah. first, right? Where are we? What are we doing? Are we responding in the best way that we can? Well, and here's the thing, the, the bias that we have spiritually, I feel like, uh, I feel like is still upon condemnation. So when, whenever I have been taught passages like this, I think you might hear this from other teachers, that there is such a focus on the cut it down, you know, like there's this judgment piece. And I love 
the fact that you're pointing out that, sure, there's, there's a judgment element here in the story, but read that next line. Uh, there is a, I think you said the word nurture or something, yeah. right? Nur nurture and nourishing element as well. Um, put some manure around it. Let me, let me care and tend to this as well. And we just don't focus in on that. We hear, cut it down. You must have been a sinner. This must have been. And yeah, Jesus is offering a completely alternative narrative. The narrative, number one, that Jesus and the movement of the kingdom is in the business also of nurturing and caring for. And if we do feel like, yeah, maybe maybe there is direction because repentance is an element of this story. For sure. But let's focus in on the nurturing and the caring for and the tending to this fig tree, which is, as you mentioned, a, a symbol of Israel's leadership and Israel's people. Let's let's also focus in on that as well and recognize that there is this both and that opens up huge possibilities for what Jesus is uh, encouraging. Um, and we do not have to simply succumb or submit to, okay, God's going to do whatever God's going to do. He's going to cut me down and then I'm going to you know, just kind of live under the, the judgment of it all. Um, I love it. And you put in our notes, Kevin, which I'm going to read out because I thought it was great. The kingdom of Jesus is anti-fatalistic <laughs> consequentialism. The kingdom of Jesus is pro-responsibility. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I love the way that you had framed sort of that to, to sum up what's going on here. Anti-fatalistic consequentialism. It, it, and, it, and I mean, this I was riffing off of your, some of your notes here, too, because it is such a... Um, it can be such a missing element that responsibility can also feel like judgment and condemnation, right? We have, we are so framed in us that when we say responsibility, it's like, well, see, you're, you're not doing it right. And, and, and there's always this finger pointing. Um, but it feels like, you know, when I was reading your notes, it was like, but there is this um, casting of a brilliant hope hopeful imagination of what could be and what could become as a result of submitting to God's nourishment and nurturing and care in partnership with what we can do to continue to advance, you know, God's kingdom and, and God's, uh, God's good work. Yeah, absolutely. And a real life quick example of how this is manifesting, Kevin. I don't know if you've heard of a movement called Solutions Journalism. Oh, please tell I me just, about this. Please tell I, me about I this. Just, I discovered this maybe four or five years ago, and it, and it blew my mind and was so influential to me personally. The idea is that right now our news cycle is inherently unbalanced. And when you look at what gets covered, it tends to be focused on problems, condemnation, judgment of people in communities, and really highlighting things that are going wrong without pairing it with uh, something productive, like stories of things going right. How did people solve those problems? The issue with approaching the news cycle that way is that there's enough research that shows that when that is the way that we cover people and places and communities, it leads to less funds, less engagement, less trust from the public that they can do anything about it, right? Yeah. Um, the premise behind solutions journalism is can we start writing and telling stories that pair the problem with actual solutions that we can start going after? So an example of this that was Brilliant. really compelling to me Philadelphia has one of the highest incarceration rates in the country, but the news cycle would only cover all of the reasons why prisoners shouldn't be reintegrated into society, right? It's hard, it's cumbersome, it's expensive, look at how much it's costing the city. 
Solutions Journalism sent 15 journalists to the city of Philadelphia and said for a couple months, we want you to completely upend this narrative. And instead of just telling stories of everything going wrong, go and figure out where things are going right and highlight those. And over a couple of months, they wrote 200 stories of pairing the problem with actual solutions that were happening, things nonprofits were doing, government agencies were doing, policymakers were doing. And the outcome of that was significantly more community engagement, deeper policy discussions, prisoners themselves feeling like they weren't being condemned and engaging in the process of what reintegration into society looked like. And that to me is something that we can embody in our day-to-day -day lives, right? Not just telling the story of the judgment, but telling the story of the hope alongside it, just uh, like with the story. I cannot, I cannot tell you how excited I am to hear all that. You said you learned about this about four or five years ago. Is this a... I mean, I'm presuming this is a fairly small trend right now. <laughs> uh, it, it, it remains a small trend, as you can see when you yeah. see what's out there in the news. But, it, you know, there's a mighty group of journalists trying to yeah. fight and balance out what gets covered. Yeah. OK, so. so so there's a couple things. I feel like what you just said is, is brilliant um, for two reasons. Number one, I do feel like m many of us. We've got our Twitter feeds, we've got our Facebook feeds, we've got the algorithms that are pushing news stories our, our particular way. We've got the headlines from the New York Times and CNN and Washington Post and whatever uh, ever else we're uh, ingesting. And the level of news cycle ingesting does have an effect on how we see the world and how we behave into the world. And so for you to share about solutions journalism, I think is a really helpful counter for us to consider what kind of journalism am I actually consuming? Yeah, is that, I mean, that would be fair. For sure. Take one. Absolutely. First take. Yeah. And it feels to me like, um, at least in some of the uh, reading that I've done, that journalism has unfortunately gone the way of other capitalistic endeavors in which that engagement uh, is part of the business model and therefore the people or the news stories that, um, you know, reap the most clicks uh, that get, all, all that kind of engagement are usually the ones that tend to the more base um, primal fears and anxieties of our nature. And so it makes sense that that would cascade. Okay, so that's number one. I think it's really important for us to understand that maybe how we how we are framed and how we're thinking about it is really important for what you said. But the second thing is, and this is something that you and I were just talking about, how is the Jesus movement like in some ways, solutions journalism, and then what does that tell us about those of us who are followers of this Jesus, and what kind of journalistic enterprises, I suppose, as followers of Jesus, we could be pushing into the world? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Kevin, and I think it, it's, it's a great analogy in a lot of ways, right? Because so much of the Jesus movement is about shining light and seeing potential and you know, finding empowerment in people and places and communities that have other been otherwise been forgotten, marginalized, judged, condemned, and infusing new life into that. Like time and time again, we see that that's what Jesus does throughout his ministry, whether it's who he chooses to be his disciples, the people who he surrounds right. himself with, the role that he gives to women in his ministry, uh, how he defines like who the family of God really is. And so I think that, um, that is a core part of being a follower of Jesus, right? How do we live that out in our day-to-day -day lives? And how do we tell more of those stories? And how do we act, like put that into action in the way that we live by bringing uh, that hope and potential that gets dramatized in the second half of that fig tree story into the way that we are in the world, which I actually think is a great segue into 
the next set of parables that we're going to cover. Because we got the parable of the mess. Before we head there, I just wanted yeah. wanted to say, I feel as if um, this is a really important discipline for us as a church. A discipline, not something that we default to, it's something that we have to intentionally be about, which is to con- consistently and intentionally consider the redemptive, rescuing, resurrecting, you know, loving and reconciling God that we follow, I think we are all going to be tempted at times, many times, to default into that news story of that church down the street that did what? Or that famous pastor or preacher that said the most ridiculous thing. And we don't want to discount the fact that those things have an effect in the world. But part of what we're trying to do is... <laughs> put some manure around it. We're trying. I love it. We're trying to nurture and care for, as you so wonderfully said, nurture and care for this beautiful tree that God has given us, and we can do that through the lens. To use the phrase "solutions journalism," we can do that through that particular lens, but also recognizing that that is essentially in many ways, the agenda of Jesus. Oh, it reminds Absolutely. me of John 9. This guy who was born blind, um, who uh, who sinned? Did, was it him or his parents? Like, this is, this is what they want to know. Who is the sinner here? And I love this passage because it's like people pointing out yeah. who the sinner is is so non-productive and anti-kingdom. This happened, and a lot of people read this as kind of causal, but I read it as this hopeful imagination. This happened so that God's glory may be advanced into the world. So let's figure out how to make that happen. Okay. I love it. That I, I just kind of wanted to put a pin on that because that's I great. just feel like that's just so rich for me personally because it is so distracting. All the news and, and the doom scrolling of all the things. There are unfortunate things that are happening, and we don't want to ignore them or discount them. But we are also followers of Jesus who are nurturing something beautiful and wonderful and hopeful in this world. Um, and then we'll get Absolutely. to uh, the parables here. I, I think yes. I wanted to... I think Pamela had a, had a quick question, Kevin, if you want to throw it up there, which is, love this, uh, God of grace and many, many new chances, opportunities, and outlooks question. How does this compare to the withered fig tree in Mark 11? <laughs> so I'm curious, Kevin, to get your take from what I've read. It seems like the connection between what Jesus is doing here and the withered fig tree in Mark yeah. isn't quite, it's not as direct a connection besides the fact that there's a fig tree in both. Yeah. But I'm curious if you have an alternate take on yeah, that. Yeah, the, 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 short, the short response, not an answer, I'll be careful to say not an answer, but the short response is that there is still judgment. Like there's, right. there's judgment here in, in the Luke passage and there is judgment against the religious leaders. Again, that's the fig tree analogy there the religious leaders that are there. Um, and that condemnation is, hey, deserved. If you are a religious person in a position of power and you hold essentially the keys and the authority to how the the people, the congregants or your constituents, how whatever you want to say, um, for how they relate to God, how they sacrifice to God, how they come into intimacy with God, and you are charging them extra or you're overburdening them with additional religious responsibilities or hierarchies that God never intended, then there is this condemnation that Jesus speaks. So I don't think it's a contradiction. Um, and I know, Pamela, you didn't say that. Um, but uh, that's how I would compare it. We are not, 
I, I think what Sibby and I are attempting to say is we're not trying to emphasize one over the other as if one is more important. I think we're emphasizing the nurturing because I personally feel that it's been neglected in the conversation, but there is still judgment. And what Mark is attempting to do in that particular passage uh, may have a, diff a slightly different focus from the Luke. Is that an okay I answer? So. Pamela? I think that's, I think that's fair. Pamela, thank you so much for your question. Now, the reason why this mustard and yeast parable next is so brilliant is because it comes on the heels of all of that. Nurturing something beautiful, what God is doing, um, the hope and imagination of possibility. And then Sidney, what would you say is the cliff notes or you want to you want to give a little bit of a summary or or maybe you just read it. Do you want right. to read it? Yeah, I can read it and then give us just a sense of where we're at and why I find this yeah. uh, as compelling as I do. So this is uh, Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. And we see, then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all the way through the dough. So just to nerd out for a second, Kevin, like in terms of parable stylistic technique here, this is what is called a parable twin. And it's when there nice. are two parables, each making a point that are paired side by side for some communication effect. And you've got uh, identical parable twins where both parables are making the exact same point and fraternal parable twins, <laughs> which I find funny, that are making similar thematic points, but um, are slightly different. And just to set up where we're at, and I think, what influences my reading of this parable. This is the first mention of Jesus in a synagogue since the start of his journey into Jerusalem mm. in Luke chapter nine, right? And to remind ourselves what uh, Jesus said in Luke, the last time he was on the Sabbath at a synagogue, it was him announcing that a central component of his ministry would be delivering good news to the poor. And that to me uh, helps me frame the way that I see this parable, which has tons of different interpretations, Kevin. So a couple of like the common ones, and then I can go to the one that I find Do the it. most resonance in. Uh, there are some commentators who think that, you know, the birds sitting in the mustard seed that becomes a tree represent the Gentile nations uh, being included in God's family, right? And that this parable represents the singular multi-ethnic family of God. You have other commentators who take a slightly more political edge to the uh, parable and they say that the mustard seed is like a despised and rejected weed that's going to go and challenge and destroy everything that's uh, status quo or anti-gospel and they're drawing from old testament language where god uses similar language to describe like taking down assyria or babylon right or any other um like big empire that comes in the way of this kingdom i think though for me and i think there's like fair those are all fair readings the version interpretation of this parable that's most compelling is one we've talked about before in preaching luke and that is just potential from smallness and the pervasiveness of god's kingdom coming from the most unusual small modest uh sometimes even ignored and scorned beginnings right we have preached on this before my airpod just fell off <laughs> preached on this before in Luke, where we've talked so much about uh, potential coming from communities themselves 
a community's ability to uh, provide and contribute towards advancing the kingdom of God. Yep. And to me, just this idea of a mustard seed, which in the Greco-Roman world was this like tiny little plant that would never have grown into a big tree. Though contrast of those images of, you know, Jesus's ministry being this, you know, relatively obscure, unknown, confusing movement to so many people turning into the movement that it did in our world today is just super powerful. And that's the reading that resonates most with me, but I'd love to, to hear what you think. Uh, I don't think anything different. <laughs> I, I'm very much resonant with that interpretation. All those other ones that you mentioned, uh, Christianity has a history of allegorical interpretations, meaning, that, you know, you take particular images and then you apply them to, like what you said, Jew, Gentile, and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and for sure, there are portions in our text and in our story where there's very clear symbolism, I would say that the fig tree is a, is a part of that. Um, but then then there's the temptation that some of us have to take, uh, let's say, the the mustard seed is is like the great power of the Spirit of God coming, to, right? And then we get, kind of get imaginative in the allegory. So your inter where you land on the interpretation about the smallness uh, and the effectiveness, I think, is, is incredibly um, on point and what I would also support. Uh, just a couple notes. For those of you who uh, have traveled the land with us, you'll see mustard plants actually growing out of the walls. Uh, and part of the image of both the dough, the yeast in the dough and the mustard plant and the, uh, the garden um, is that, you know, this seemingly small, insignificant, like what in the world could this thing do? It can spread and it can be amazingly present in all sorts of different locations and and we'll be walking down the street and the, oh there's another mustard plant there's another mustard plant there's another mustard plant um and very much like the yeast what is this little thing going to do um give it some kneading then it it's throughout the entire thing and the brilliance once again of jesus's teaching which is so i think so necessary for us is that our temptation is to make grandiose explanations or to achieve grandiose results. In fact, we're in Silicon Valley. You want you want high capital. You want large number of clicks and hits. You want huge audiences. You you want uh, you know great capital gains. Whatever it is, and and bigness, bigness, bigness. Where growth. In fact, growth is essentially the gospel <laughs> in in many companies. Right? What's what's been the growth? Um, particular piece. Um, and I find your interpretation, which I'm on board with, to be counter in that we're not really looking for those big, huge events in life that make the kingdom go forward. We are looking for everyday, small, little, seemingly insignificant events. And this is how the movement of God's kingdom advances. And yeah. I find this to be powerfully good news in a world, by the way, not just our world, in the Greco-Roman world as well, where largesse was the status of, uh, the, the, the status and the stature that would be clearly the influencers of society and of the culture. And let's just think about Jesus. Who was Jesus? He was a, right. we, 
I mean, one of the reasons why people criticize Jesus is because we don't have a lot about him because he was an insignificant, I mean, in the grand scheme of the Roman Empire, an insignificant character in the backwoods yeah. of an unknown, I shouldn't say unknown, but an insignificant part of the empire, a, a pass-through way, right? Like, just yeah. get out of my way. I've got, I got, I got to trade with Babylon or Egypt or, or Greece or whatever. And this little mustard seed yeast driven kingdom has caused billions of people now to be transformed and for spark to exist <laughs> you know i i love it and i think there's two two other places where um you know jesus quotes again the mustard seed in the gospel accounts right which i think support this interpretation so in matthew chapter 17 jesus says for truly i tell you if you have faith the size of a mustard seed you will say to this mountain move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So there it is. And then again, in Luke chapter 17, a little further down, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you, mm -hmm. right? So so there it is again, just this transformative, radical, like enormous power coming from places that we would least expect it to come from. Sid, we're coming uh, close to the end of our time here. This has been... Uh, I. I love our teaching team. I love all of you. This is, it's always so rich and wonderful. So thank you so much for spending some time. Let's, uh, let's sew it. Oh, actually, sorry. I wanted to add Linda's, uh, Linda's comment here. Uh, we were talking about blaming. She also mentioned Job's buddies too, must have done something to deserve this. So yeah, spot on. We, we see this theme all along. Helen, I thought, made a really wonderful um, observation. Could we say Jesus wants us to know that we can't blame misfortune on our sin, but we are still accountable for our actions? Brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliantly uh, put. This is this is uh, uh, absolutely correct. Um, Linda just uh, posted up kingdom of God is pro responsibility as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Helen said Jesus lived in a flyover state. <laughs> well, well, uh, yeah, we want to be careful. <laughs> I want to be sensitive to anybody who's watching who might happen to be in a flyover state. Uh, God's kingdom is an infinite number of acts of kindness and humanity, as Pamela said. So uh, thank you guys so much for your... I, I'm I'm on board. This is why not only do I love our teaching... I love our our church. I love all of your comments. Thank you so much and, and adding to that. Let's sew it up. For we sure. had fig tree, yeast, mustard seed. Sid, what would you encourage our people with, you know, we're coming to the end of a pandemic. We're going to be meeting in person really soon. Um, and we're tired. I don't know. What would you say to our, our folks here? I'm going to cheat and I'm going to take an answer from Amy Jo Levine because ah. I think that she puts it really well. Um, and she had this amazing quote and that she says at the end of like a little summary she writes in short stories for Jesus about uh, both of these twin parables. And she says, Perhaps these parables tell us that despite all of our images of golden slippers and harps and halos, the kingdom is present at the communal oven of a Galilean village where everyone has enough to eat. It is present in everything, and it is available to all, from the sourdough starter to the rain and the sunshine. It's something that works its way through our lives, and we realize its import only when we do not have it. To clean out the old leaven allows us to make room for the new, to start again, to feast. And I think that sort of just sums it up for me beautifully. I couldn't have articulated it as well as she did. So <laughs> oh, we'll just steal. 
yep. I'll just steal AJ's beautiful words. Yeah, um, and I would just simply echo the phrase that comes to mind um, is kind of like perceived and unperceived. Yeah. We perceive all of these events in our lives to be connected with our, our sin or somebody else's sin. This is go back to the judgment. But the counter of that or the kingdom that's being moved forward are the unperceived potentials that exist in that every day. The bread, the food, the hug or the handshake, the hello. All of you parents who love your child yet another day. Uh, all of you Silicon Valley workers who go to work and live ethically and attempt to care for your colleagues and your co-workers with kindness and respect uh, and with Jesus's love. Um, to those of you who are involved in book clubs and trying to grow in your understanding. Uh, just a million and one little things that we do every single day is part of the advancement of the kingdom. And we do not perceive it to be powerful, huge. And that's the whole point is that it's what everybody does all the time. And what this church does, like, for example, this church is delivering groceries, right? Delivering groceries to some families who are here because they needed to, they needed to find refuge. Those groceries are the advancement of, of God's kingdom. This community stands on the corner for racial justice because this community is, are, is advancing the kingdom. And so all of these things that this community, this church does, this, this is the Jesus movement. And what we are wanting to do is to put some manure around it. <laughs> I'm so yes. sorry. I'm a so sorry. Way to end, Kevin. No, no, no. That's really horrible. But I mean, that's it's in the passage, right? It's in to it's to nurture it, to care for it, to tend to it, so that it has, so it can reach its greatest potential in what um, what we have all been called and designed and created to be. Yeah. And I just say to pair that, Kevin, like the discipline to go and look and find those examples and stories in our lives, right? Because it's easy to miss them. Yeah. And it's easy to believe, particularly in like Silicon Valley, that the only kind of impact you can have on the world is fang-sized, right? Like giant companies with giant scale, and for, that is the way to- For somebody who doesn't know, what's fang? Facebook? Uh, Facebook, uh, Apple, Netflix, Google. Yeah. There we go. Um, but you know, having the discipline, just like Jesus encourages us to, to go and look around us and to find the people the places, the groups, the communities that are having impact in ways that we never would have expected. Yes. And it's when we can find and celebrate uh, those entities that I think we really start realizing that the kingdom is working in ways that are so much more mysterious and beautiful and unstoppable than we really ever could have imagined. And I, I would just love to encourage our church with exactly what you just said. The kingdom is working in amazing ways and we will be distracted with news and doom scrolling and whatever's in our social media feeds. But we are here to proclaim an alternative. The kingdom of God is advancing in each and every one of us. Jesus' love, work, redemption, rescue, resurrection, reconciliation is happening. And it is, as you mentioned, a discipline for us to continue to pursue it. So, Sid, thank you. Thank you, for Kevin. For an amazing conversation. Oh, so, so grateful. 
And my friends, to all of you sparkers, we're actually going to transition into a time of communion, which, again, some may perceive as insignificant or just a small thing. But once again, the continued um, ritual and practice of remembering Christ's death, burial, resurrection, is part of the advancement of the kingdom. Every time we gather to participate in this ceremony together, in this ritual together, we are reminding ourselves of this very kingdom that Jesus advanced. As we've done for the last couple of weeks, we'll let the slides lead us in communion, and I'll see you on the back end for a few announcements. Thanks, everybody.